0: name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God will test his people. If you belong to Christ, God will test your faith and he will test your character. Uh, Have you ever been in a situation where you think to yourself, I think God is testing me right now? I know I've been in a lot of those situations over the years where I'm like, I think God is testing my heart. He's testing what's really inside of me. David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. And God tests us, not because he's mean, not because he doesn't want us to have any fun, but God will test your faith to refine your faith, that you might walk more closely with him. He's going to test your love, the quality of your love. He's going to refine your love, that you might love people more deeply. And he is going to test you, that you might share in his holiness, storing up eternal rewards. And so it is a good thing that the God of the universe tests us. He tests us in a way that he knows best. He tests us for our good. And he will test us over the years. He will test us in two basic ways. He will test us with trials, and he will also test us with blessing. There are so many blessings in life, and there are so many trials in life. There are so many ways to suffer. You know, we experience broken relationships. We experience career problems, financial problems, health problems. There are so many ways that you can experience pain. A friend of mine recently tore his Achilles tendon. Uh, which is so brutal. I mean, if you want to suffer, tear your Achilles tendon. Anyone here has anyone torn their Achilles tendon in here? Okay, nobody. Oh man, you guys are lucky. You guys are lucky. Oh, one person. Oh, twice. Oh my goodness, that's painful. And I'm at. I am at. <laughs> and I'm at the point in my life. I don't know if you're here yet, but I'm at the point in my life where uh, we call an ambulance before a pickup game of basketball. Because we know someone's going down. We don't know who's going to get injured, but when you play basketball, someone is going to get injured. There are many ways to suffer. And our hearts are like giant sponges. And when you go through suffering, when you go through trials, you get wrung out. You get squeezed. And what you've been soaking in, what you've been trusting in, what you've been hoping for, begins to come out of you. And so we are tested by trials. God will test us by trials. And the same is true in blessing. That in blessing... In success, God is testing you. He's testing you to see whether you really love him or you love his gifts. Do you really love the the God of the Bible or do you love the blessings that he brings? And in Genesis chapter 14, Abram is tested by trials and then he's going to be tested by blessing. In verse 17, which is where our text begins, it is the pivot point where Abram moves from being tested by trials to being tested by blessing. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. It says, after Abram returned from defeating Cater uh, uh, Laomer and the kings who were with him. So there's a lot into this in this first sentence here. A lot happening here. Remember that Abram had gone through a lot. There was a regional war that initially had nothing to do with Abram. And here's a quick summary of the battle, of what happened earlier in the chapter. There were four kings. If you want to put that slide up. There were four kings in the northeast. This is Babylon. This is where the Tower of Babel was built. There were four kings in this region who decided to go on a warring campaign. They decided to go conquer these city-states. And so they came down to the south. If you want to go to the next slide here. And then they kept, after they they defeated the first one, then they came all the way down and they're crushing everyone as they go. And each victory, they get more people, more resources, they get stronger. So this army, led by Cater Laomer, is getting bigger and bigger and more powerful as they go. Now, there were five kings who united under the king of Sodom. His name was Bera. And they were under Cater-Leomer. And they said, it's time to go out and fight these guys. And so they go out to fight. And this is a brutal battle. And the result of the battle, if you want to go to the next slide, the, the result of the battle is that these five kings, they were destroyed by the four kings. And now all of these cities from which they came, they have no defense. So then they went up north. They went up north and they took Everything in all of, all of these cities. I mean, this would be millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of resources. And during that time, Lot, who was living in Sodom, was taken as well. And Lot was Abram's nephew. In many ways, Lot was Abram's son. Abram did not have any children, and Lot did not have a father. And so his relationship to Lot was very similar to a father-son relationship. And now he has been taken captive. He has been taken captive by a hostile, hostile nation. And they're going to enslave him or kill him or whatever it is. A lot of bad stuff is going to happen to Lot. And so Abram is being squeezed. He's being wrung out. And Abram passes the test. He acts in genuine faith towards God and his word. He acts with real courage and real love. And what he does is he takes 318 trained men who are in his house. He had 318 trained men, trained for battle. They had weapons. And they had skills, which is awesome, to have 318 trained men in your household. I have a friend who was a wrestler, and he was into all kind, different kinds of wrestling, and he was a Marine. And one time he gave me a hug. He came up to me, whispered in my ear. He said, Dan, do you, do you know how many different ways I could kill you? <laughs> I, said, I said, I don't know. I don't know how many. I don't want to know, but probably a lot of ways. And I thought about it. He could kill me like 100 ways. I said, your job is, is to protect me, buddy. And so he's, he's a good man. He takes care of me, but could you imagine having 318 of those guys in your household? And so Abram says, let's go, guys. And he rallies his allies, so he adds more soldiers. So he has his 318 and his allies, and he chases this army up to the north, and he surprises them, and he crushes them. He defeats them. And verse 16 says, he brought back all the goods. So everything that had been taken along the way, all of the plunder... Everything that had been taken, Abram got back. He brought back all the goods and also his, his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. And so in verse 17, Abram is returning from a stunning victory. He was a huge underdog, and he crushed them, and he took everything back. So everyone is thrilled, all the people who were taken, all these women, all the children, all of these men. They were thinking, we're going to be enslaved in Babylon. We have no no hope, no future, nothing going for, for, for us. We're separated from our land. We're separated from our possessions. We're separated from our people. And God uses Abram, this guy Abram, to go conquer them, to crush them and recover everything. This would have made Abram the most powerful king in the Middle East. The four kings crushed the five kings, and Abram crushed the four kings. He's on top. He's the, he's the biggest, baddest dog in the area. He is the hero of heroes. And so he is strolling back into town with a vi- victorious army. People are so happy. The boombox is playing We Are the Champions by Queen. I mean, they are just over the moon excited. They are so thankful for what has happened. And as they're coming back into town, verse 17 says, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheba Valley. That is the king's valley. So he's coming back in victorious, and the king of Sodom goes out to meet him, and there's another king that comes out to meet him as well. Verse 18, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. And so all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Melchizedek. He was not part of the war. We've never heard of him before, but here he comes, and he plays a prominent role in the life of Abram. So what do we know about Melchizedek? I'm going to quickly give you eight details. Number one, Melchizedek is obscure. He is is intentionally obscure in the text. Virtually every named person in Genesis has a genealogy. If you're named in the book of Genesis, you can go back and figure out who their parents were. It says this person begat this person who begat this person who begat this person, and they lived this long, and then they died, and then they lived, and then they died. But we don't get any of that information with Melchizedek. No genealogy, no age, no relatives, no information. He just pops into the story. Number two, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He is the king of Salem, or Jerusalem. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem would become the capital city of the nation of Israel. Jerusalem is arguably the most important, significant city in all of the Bible, It is the capital city of the people of God, the nation of Israel. This is where the temple will will be built. This is where sacrifices will be made. This is where kings would rule. It is a significant city, and he is the first listed king of the city of God. Number three, Melchizedek is the king of peace. He is the king of peace. The word Salem is where you get the word shalom or peace. Peace in Hebrew, shalom in Hebrew, means more than the absence of fighting. So the information we get here is not that there were no wars going on in Salem. That's not it. It's that he's the king of peace, the king of right relationships, completeness, well-being, wholeness, and harmony. He is the king of Salem, the king of peace. So when you think about about Jerusalem, that name Jerusalem really means city of peace. It is the city of peace in a crazy world. Number four, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. Malki means king, Zadok means righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. Number five, Melchizedek is both king and priest. King and priest, verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. So in verse 18, Abram and Melchizedek discover that they have been worshiping the same God. All the tribes, all the people, all the city-states in this, in this region, they were not worshiping God Most High, the God of the Bible. They were not worshiping the one who created them. They were worshiping other gods. They were building towers to themselves. They were living for themselves, living life on their own terms. But in the King's Valley, Melchizedek comes out to Abram, and they discover we are worshiping the same God, the one true God, God Most High. And we're supposed to notice that the first king of Salem is also a priest. He is a king priest. This is significant because according to the law, to the law which would come about five or six hundred years after this encounter with Abram, according to the law, kings could not be priests. There were two separate offices that could not be put together. Do you remember what happened with King Saul, the first king of Israel? He was going into a battle, and he was, he was scared. He was fearful about what was about to take place. And so he acted as a priest, and he made sacrifices to God. And that was a violation of what God had told him to do. And so God took the kingdom away from Saul because he acted as a priest. And so all throughout the law, you see that the office of king and priest are two separate offices. But the first king of Jerusalem was a king-priest. Number six. Melchizedek meets Abram, brings out royal priestly, a royal priestly feast, and offers fellowship. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. Bread and wine, this phrase bread and wine, would have been a huge, a huge feast. It was the king's food. It was a huge blessing to Abram and his people as he comes back into town People would have been very hungry. They had been traveling for a really long time. They had just got done with war. Very stressful situation. And now, here comes this king out of nowhere, and he's bringing bread and wine. It was a royal priestly feast. Feast Bread and wine means a royal feast provided by a priest. And a meal like this was meant to produce Fellowship. It was designed to produce relationship. You wouldn't do this for your enemies. It wasn't like a drive-through, get your food and get out of here. It was designed to be a meal of fellowship where Abram would meet with Melchizedek and the people would enjoy the food and enjoy being together. Number seven, Melchizedek blesses Abram. Melchizedek blesses Abram. So he brings out bread and wine. He brings out a royal priestly feast, and then he blesses him. Verse 19, He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Now the key word in these two verses is the word blessed. Blessed. The word blessed comes from Genesis chapter 12. It echoes Genesis chapter 12. Remember when God called Abram to himself? He was a pagan idolater. God calls Abram to himself and he says, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing to all the families of the world. Sin has scattered humanity all throughout the world, but through you, Abram, all the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed through your descendants, which is an incredible thing, that he would bless Abram and make Abram a blessing. And here, Melchizedek, who is a priest to God Most High, the same God that called Abram to himself and blessed him, now Melchizedek is blessing the one that God has blessed, And I was thinking about why Melchizedek does this. Why does he bless Abram? And I don't know for sure, but I was thinking through the passage this week, and I'm sure as they're sitting together enjoying a meal, I am sure that they talked about the battle that they had just fought and won. And I'm sure Melchizedek is saying, wait a second, Abram. Okay, you took 318 men and your allies, and you traveled way up north, and then you took on Cater Laomer, and you crushed him? That's what happened? Yeah, that's what happened, and I'm sure Melchizedek is thinking the only way to explain this is that God has blessed you. That's the only way. Abram was a massive underdog in the battle, and so he says, "He says, look at verse nineteen, he's, or verse twenty, and blessed God, blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you." This is how he's explaining what's going on. There's a divine explanation for Abram's victory in the battle. He says, "Blessed." Be God most high, who's given you the victory in battle. Number eight, Melchizedek receives a tenth from Abram. Melchizedek receives a tenth from Abram. Verse 20, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This would have been millions of dollars. Millions of dollars in resources, gold, silver, cattle, all kinds of stuff. Millions of dollars tithed to Melchizedek. Now, why would Abram do this? There's no command here. Do you see a command? Hey, Abram, you're supposed to tithe. No, no command, no instruction, but he does it voluntarily. It, you get the, 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 the image in the story that this was the appropriate thing to do, like, that Abram is talking with Melchizedek, and he says, I know what to do. Here's a, ten, here's a tenth. Here's 10% of all of the plunder, millions of dollars. Why would he do this? I, I'm, I'm sure that many of you, maybe most of you, have been around rich people before, influential people before, people of power, maybe famous people, maybe celebrities. I'm sure you've been around people like that before. And have you ever spent time with people like this? Maybe you have dinner together. And then after the dinner is over, you say, I know what I need to do. I need to give them 10% of everything I have. Do you ever do that? You're like, I don't know why. I did, can I go to the bank real quick? I just got 10% of everything I have belongs to you. You've never felt that way. So this is, this, is not, this is not a natural thing. When you read it, you just read, and he tithed, and he gave 10%, and we keep going. But no, no, this, this is so weird in the text. There's no precedent in the scriptures for tithing at this point. This is the first time you see a priest, and this is the first time you see a tenth, a tithe. So what, what's going on here? What, what is going on? Why, is Abram, why did Abram feel the need to give Melchizedek 10%? And why in the world would would Melchizedek accept it? You know, if someone said this has never happened, never going to happen, but if I had dinner with someone and they said, "Hey Dan, I think you're the greatest thing in the world. You're so incredible. Here's ten percent of everything I own," I would say, "What? Like I don't. I would. I wouldn't even feel right accepting that." I'd say, "Give me twenty percent." If that's what you're, no, I'm just. I'm, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't accept that. So why is Melchizedek okay with accepting? Why does Abraham give? And then why does? Melchizedek, receive it. What's going on? Two reasons. First, the tithe was Abram recognizing the legitimacy of Melchizedek. That's what we're supposed to learn. That he is a legitimate priest of God most high. This is what the tithe is signaling. He's saying, no, this is a legitimate priest. Legitimate priesthood. Number two, the tithe was an act of love and worship to God. The tithe here for Abram is an act of love and worship to God, This is Abram's heart overflowing with gratitude for God. Thanksgiving to God who, who has handed his enemies over to him in battle. And he says, here you go. Here you go. It's an act of love and worship to God. This is the sign that Abram is passing the test of blessing. This is the sign he's passing the test. Abram did not allow success and blessing to go to his head. You know, sometimes when you're going through a trial, I'm sure all of you have felt this way, you're going through a trial and you just cry out to God, you say, why God, why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? This is so frustrating. It's so painful, it's so confusing. But when you experience blessing, do you, do you cry out to God, why God, are you blessing me this way? No, you know what you say? I know exactly why this is happening. I made a great decision. I planned better than basically everyone. I knew it was coming down the road and I prepared and wow, wow. People should listen to me more often. That's what we say. We use bless- blessing tends to puff, puff up our hearts with pride. And so Abram is on cloud nine, but he is not proud. He is not self-righteous. Rather, Abram recognizes that all that he has belongs to God, that the victory in the battle belongs to the Lord. All of these possessions belong to the Lord. What do you have that you have not received? And so if you want to pass the test of blessing, your heart your heart needs to be like Abram's, who says, all that I have is a gift from God's hand. All that I have is a blessing that has come from the Lord. Otherwise, your blessing will lift up your heart and make you proud. And because Abram recognizes that all that he has belongs to the Lord, he's free to give. He's free to give generously. People who cannot give generously, it is because we think it all belongs to us. It's mine, and I have to hold on to it. It's mine. It belongs to me, but when you recognize all that I have is a gift from God, then we're free to give, and so Abram passes the test. He passes the test. Now, right after this, the king of Sodom, he probably was there sharing the meal. He comes back into the picture. He says, this is my shot, okay? Abram's just interacted with He's just interacted with Melchizedek, and he says, okay, my turn. I'm going to deal with Abram, verse 21. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. Wow, what a contrast between two kings. What a difference. Remember who Melchizedek is? He is the king of righteousness. But what about the king of Sodom? He is the king of wickedness. And do you see how Melchizedek came out offering a blessing giving him bread and wine, a royal feast. But here comes the king of Sodom, and he does not not bring a blessing. He does not bring bread and wine. There is no thanksgiving. The most appropriate thing for the king of Sodom to say to Abram would be, thank you. We were destroyed by these kings. We had nothing, and now all of our people are coming back into the city. The best thing he could have said is thank you, but he doesn't do that. He meets Abram, and he says, Give me the people. He comes making a demand of Abram. And according to the ancient custom, all the people and all the resources rightly belong to Abram, who was victorious in battle. He doesn't owe the king of Sodom anything. And he says, okay, you just gave 10%. You just gave 10% of the possessions to Melchizedek. You don't need to give me anything. Just give me the people. Give me the people. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. You can't get that back anyways. But as for the share of the men who came with me, his allies, Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre, they can take their share. And he walks away. He walks away from millions and millions and millions of dollars and resources. Now, why would he do this? Well, a friend of mine, who's a pastor at another church, uh, he told me the incredible story of a young man who came to faith in Christ. His life was turned upside down. He got baptized, he joined the church, his life was changing like crazy. But this man came out of a very, very rough background. He was dealing drugs and involved with all kinds of criminal activities. And on one particular Sunday, my friend was teaching his church about financial stewardship and how tithing fits into the picture. And the next day, Monday morning, this young man, a new Christian, walks into the church with $300,000 in cash, and he gives it to the pastor. He says, here you go. He goes, this is my tithe. And then my friend asked this young man a question. He says, where did this money come from? And I told him, you shouldn't have asked that question. You just don't. Don't, don't ask that question. And, he, and the young man says, "From my, my old life, from my life of drugs and criminal activities. And then my friend said, I don't think we can accept this money. And the young man asked, who should I give the money to? And I yelled over the phone, Me! Give it to to me! (laughs) We can put $300,000 to work pretty easily. Where do you think these soft new chairs came from, people? (laughs) Not not from drug money, I'm just kidding. But But my friend and his team, they decided we can't accept the money. And he walks away from $300,000. I think this is similar to what happens to Abram. See, Sodom was, was rich because they were wicked. They were rich because they were wicked. That this money had been made in wickedness. And sometimes there are gray issues in life. You get into a situation and you're like, I don't even know what the right thing is. Then there are black and white issues. And this, is, this was a black and white issue. Abram says, I don't want anything to do with Sodom. I don't want a nickel from, from Sodom. He knew that the money had been made in wickedness. Now, the gold did not say immorality on it. That's not what it said. He just knew where it came from. And so what do we learn about Abram? We learn that he passes the test. In this situation, he he passes the test of blessing. He passes the test of blessing when he gives generously, and then he passes the test of, of blessing when he walks away from dirty money. In Genesis 13, remember when there was a famine and Abram went down to Egypt? I found myself very disappointed in Abram. I don't know if you had that experience <laughs> because he's, he, he, he's afraid of Pharaoh and he says, yeah, she, uh, Sarah, she's my sister, right, Says, you know, right? We're just brother, sister. And he lies to get out of trouble and you're like, oh, don't do that, Abram. You, you, you have received great promises from God. But in Genesis 14, he passes the test of trials. He passes the test. He acts with faith, with love, and with courage and he goes and gets lot and rescues all these people and then he passes the test of blessing he gives 10% to god as an act of worship and then he walks away from tens of millions of dollars he says i don't want anything to do with sodom i don't want anyone to think that my blessing comes from sin from evil you know whatever blessing i have it comes from the lord abram says i know where my bread is buttered and it's not in sodom it comes from the lord he he is my redeemer He is my God. He is the one who blesses me. And so here's a principle that we see play out in the text. And I hope you take this to heart. Here's the principle. A heart satisfied in God will say yes to God and no to sin, Satan, and the pleasures of this world. Why was Abram able to walk away? Because his heart was content in the Lord. He knew who God was. He didn't love God because of the blessings of God. He loved God because of who God is. And so when your heart is content in the Lord, you can walk away from sin. You can walk away from unrighteousness. You can walk away from the pleasures of the world. And this is what we see repeated time and time and time again in the scriptures. That when people's hearts are content in the Lord, when, where their greatest joy is in knowing God, then they are strong under temptation. They're able to say no to their flesh. They're, they're able to say no to the pleasures of this world. But the opposite is true as well. A discontent heart will say no to God. A discontent heart will say yes to sin and pleasure and all that we can get our hands on. Proverbs 27 7 says, A satisfied person despises honey. But a hungry person, to a hungry person, any better thing is sweet. When you're full, you eat a big meal. Someone can bring a big steak out and put it right in front of you, or sushi or whatever it is, cheesecake. They can put it right in front of you. And when you're full, you can look at that steak and you say, I don't even want it. But when you're hungry, when you're hungry, like actually starving, everything looks like food. The only question you're thinking about is, can I eat that? Can I eat that? Is that edible? Is that edible? Any better thing is sweet. And see, people who don't know God, people who are not satisfied in God are looking for life. They're they're feeding on the pleasures of this life. And we think, i got to get more friendships, and more money, and more success, and, and a better family, and a better sex life, and a better career, and more fame, or whatever it is. And once I can get my circumstances the way I want them, then I, will, then I will finally have life. And all of those things are fine. A good family is good. good sex life is good. A good career is good. All of those things are fine. But if you feed on those things to find life, it will corrupt your soul. It will leave you empty. It will blind you and desensitize you. And I believe that Abram saw what happened to Lot. Do you remember what happened to Lot? Where they were, there was fighting over the fields or over the land, and, and then what happened was Abram says, hey, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And do you remember what Lot picked? He picked Sodom. He saw the glory and the riches of Sodom, and he went there to find his life But it got him into big trouble, taken away into captivity. And the same thing is true. When you you live according to your sight, when you live according to what you think is going to give you life apart from God, it will drag you into all kinds of sin and captivity. And so let me ask you this morning is your greatest joy in Christ? Is your greatest joy in Christ? Is your heart satisfied in Him? That's the goal of the Christian life, that we might find our lives in Christ. And when our hearts are satisfied in him, then the Christian life opens up for us. But when you're seeking to find life in other things, man, the Christian life can be such a drag. And so Melchizedek demonstrates for us that Abram, by the grace of God, passes the test. He's not going to pass every test, as you know, but he passes this test. And more importantly, Melchizedek, he reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ. I made a list this week of 10 ways that Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ from Hebrews chapter 10. And we're not gonna go through 10 of them. Uh, We're gonna go through one. We're gonna go through one of those ways. And I just wanna draw your attention to verse 18. It says in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. So Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. How can you not see how this points to the Lord Jesus Christ? Melchizedek, the priest king of Jerusalem, came out to meet Abram bringing bread and wine. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate priest king, he comes to us offering us bread and wine. And see, bread and wine, bread in the cup, according to what the Lord Jesus has done for us. It has so much significance. I mean, you think about what Jesus said when he was with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. He took bread. He says, this is my body. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup and says, this is, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And see, the bread and the wine and the Lord, or and Melchizedek, they're pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a picture of who Jesus Christ is. Now, one question I want you to think about as we close is the question, why did the law forbid a king from being a priest? Why did the Levitical law forbid a king from being a priest? Because Jesus is a king. He is the rightful king of Israel. He is the rightful king of all things, over all things. And the answer is that according to the law, when you think about what the law is and what the law did, there was this whole structure with priests who would stand day after day in the temple, and they would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, and they would offer the sacrifices, the blood of a lamb as atonement for the sins of the people. But see, according to the book of Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of, of lambs and goats, bulls and goats, to take away sin. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he de- he's not a descendant of Levi. He doesn't come from Levi. He's not a priest according to the Levitical line. He is a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. He is the eternal priest, the ultimate priest, who went into the Holy of Holies, not in Jerusalem, but he went into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And he did not come bringing the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. He came bringing his own blood to make atonement for sin, because there is only one way for our sins to be forgiven. There's only one sacrifice that can take away our sins. And that sacrifice is not your best effort. It's not going to church. It's not your money. It's not the blood of a lamb or a goat. The only way for sins to be atoned for is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, He is our priest king. He is the one who came to mediate the relationship between God and man, to be the bridge between God and man through his life, death, and resurrection. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, he is not only the priest king, he is also the king of righteousness and the king of peace. The world is not at peace today. Nations rage against nations. Relationships are broken everywhere. And the Bible teaches us that the reason there's chaos in the world is because we have rebelled against our God. We are not at peace with God and therefore we are not at peace with one another. We have not loved righteousness. We have loved wickedness. And because of that, that makes every person worthy of hell. And so the ultimate king, king of righteousness and king of peace, the ultimate king priest came into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might make us righteous. That that he might go to the cross and die on the cross for, for our sins, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be clothed in the very righteousness of God. And when God makes a person when God forgives a person's sins and makes that person righteous through the blood of Christ, that person is then at peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is such good news. Therefore since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the- through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, You are at peace with God because your sins have been forgiven, you've been clothed with the righteousness of God, and now you stand in a position of grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take communion as a body, and we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. Communion, it, it, it is designed for those who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your souls. And so during this time, I want you to just, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take communion. You're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. That's what the scriptures say. If you're living in open, unrepentant sin, you should not take communion. You're, you're, you're living in rebellion to God. You're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. But if you know Christ, you've been saved by the grace of God. My hope is that—is that during this time, you will remember what Christ has done for you. You'll remember that his his body was broken, and that his blood was shed, that you might be forgiven, that you might be made righteous, that you might be at peace with God, that you might stand in a position of grace. And so I'm going to pray, and then there are little tables uh, in the auditorium here with little cups, with a little bread, and i want